Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And the views expressed on our show do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest will be Dr. Elliot Bedford, a Ph.D. ethicist at St. Vincent's Hospital in Indianapolis, and he's going to help us understand two topics related to babies and technology. First, the potential benefits and dangers of artificial wombs, and he'll help us think about the move by many young women these days to freeze some of their eggs. Wombs are scary. Artificial wombs might even be scarier, but we'll see. Indeed. But, but first, let's go to some medical news, and we're going to talk about frozen eggs of all things. And we're not talking about chicken eggs. <laughs> no, these are the real things. Tom, just recently on CBS News This Morning, it was on one of their Weekend editions, they ran a story entitled Growing Crop of Companies Suggests Young Women Protect Themselves Against Infertility. So, And you I, saw that at the hospital, didn't you? Yeah, I was immediately intrigued that this was on the CBS News. So they presented this concept that you, as a young woman, not you, need to have your eggs frozen so that when you're ready to have children later in life, if there's a problem, you'll have this wonderful crop of young eggs to use. Even though they're aging in the freezer, <laughs> they're not aging in other ways. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they, they highlighted this company that's called Kind Body. And I don't mean in any way to sort of pick on this company, but they were the, the primary uh, or the only company really mentioned in the news story. And it's a fertility startup uh, that's known for its bright yellow vans that travel around cities offering blood tests to measure anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH, which is said to offer a woman insight into her future fertility. We'll talk more a little bit about that in a minute. Why do you think they're they're doing this? And, and why are they using little yellow vans? It, that <laughs> seems really weird for something so intensely medical. I mean, and it feels like sort of a, a scare tactic, you might say, and the response of the scared is yeah. to give money to this company. Now, it's interesting, our astute regular listeners will remember that we've talked in this show before about this AMH test, or anti-mullerian hormone, and according to the FDA, it is not approved to predict pregnancy in the future for normal, healthy women. It's only validated to be predictive of which women will stimulate well in in vitro fertilization cycles. And in fact, it even says that at the bottom of the lab study when a patient gets their result. So really, you don't have any day-to-day -day use for that test? I, I really don't. Sometimes it's interesting, and we may check that in the fertility world, but it's only been used for IVF labs and practices to predict who they should put in a stimulation course for IVF or not. It's never been uh, approved to be used to predict how well you'll do at the fertility game later in life, yet that's what this company is using it for. So is that misleading these young women? I think it is. It's using a test that the test itself is not designed to be used for. And the cost of this, this will, you'll find this interesting, is about $6,000, according to the company's non-physician CEO founder. It's about $6,000 for a session of freezing eggs. Now, she goes on to point out that that cost doesn't include the medications necessary to obtain the multiple eggs. That's about another four to $6,000. So somewhere between ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars is required for this session, you might say, of freezing your eggs. Now she goes on to point out, the CEO that is, that this is less expensive than having multiple cycles of in vitro fertilization at maybe twenty to thirty thousand dollars later in life when you realize then that you have a problem. But so aren't th they going to have to pay anyway later? <laughs> well, they are. But I think her idea is that you're going to have frozen eggs and you're going to save money in the long run if you freeze them when you're young uh, because they'll be better eggs and your success rates with the IVF might be higher. So is this just a new form of insurance to add to life health homeowners? Car insurance, now fertility insurance? <laughs> 
It sort of sounds that way. I mean, I, I found it very offensive when I was listening to the story because it really it, it really did feel like a scare tactic. And I think we'll talk more with Dr. Bedford about some of the ethical implications. But they had a model on as their primary guest who was saying, look, I don't have time to think about pregnancy today. I'm busy with my modeling career. So I want to save my eggs so when I do have time and I do have the money later in life, I'll be able to do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it. Sounds like another mother of the year application in progress. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. The science only gets more interesting. Wow. Well, and from that topic, I want to give a shout out to my friend Jason Shanks. He's the president of OSV Institute, our Sunday Visitor Institute. And he uh, texted me this article uh, just several days before we taped this, published in their News Weekly on uh, January 2nd of 2019, about the debate surrounding the artificial womb. Now, the original publication of this article is back in April of 2017 in Nature Communications, but it dealt with with animal research. And just like the, the first in vitro fertilization animal was Dolly the sheep, this one involved very little lambs. And this is from, you know, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, or CHOP, which is a very distinguished, very famous children's hospital for decades, generations, really. They've done cutting-edge work with sick children. So this is not some kind of fly-by-night thing. So this has been in progress for over 50 years. Why is that, Chris? Well, forever, or at least for over 50 years, which in medicine really is forever, (laughs) people have been trying to produce what God produced a long time ago, and that is an artificial placenta. And at the risk of sounding too sciency, it's probably worth pointing out that a baby in its mother's womb is breathing, so to speak, but not with their lungs. They're getting oxygen through their blood, and the blood gets the oxygen from the placenta, which gets the oxygen from the mother. So the placenta is bringing oxygen from the mother, giving it to the baby. The baby sends that oxygenated blood to the parts of the body that need oxygen, which is all of them. (laughs) And then it takes that blood that's now without oxygen, runs it back to the placenta through the umbilical cord. It picks up more oxygen, and the whole process works in a circle. So the lungs are really not breathing underwater. They're doing nothing. They're sitting there developing, emphasis on the word developing, and they're full of water. The lungs are completely bypassed by the fetal circulation. You know, it's interesting. The bypass machine that people have cardiac bypass surgery on really was the attempt to reproduce what happens in a mother's womb with the placenta. It's fascinating. So here they're talking about it being an artificial womb. Is it a womb? Is it a placenta? Is it both? Well, it really is. And the big motivation is because of how terrible it is for extreme prematurely born infants. I mean, their probability of survival when we get down to the 22, 23-week range and below that is really abysmal. And not only survival, and it becomes difficult to hear, particularly for our listeners maybe that have, that have had a premature child, but at, ten, at, excuse me, at 22 weeks, it's really a, about a half percent chance of surviving. At 22 to 23 weeks, it goes up a little bit. But the challenge is not just surviving, but surviving uh, what is what some people may say intact, that is without severe complications like brain damage, cerebral palsy, lung problems, blindness, deafness. Um, so at that gestational age, down in the in the low twenties, things just don't go well. And so we are looking for a way to take some of these premature babies and help them mature before they come into the light of the new day. Yeah, presumably that would be, you know, the idea. And some of the big problems are with what? Lung development? Yeah, it's it, we think about lungs because that comes to mind, but the lungs aren't designed to have air in them yet. So that's a huge problem, but that's only part of the problem. Babies can't transition from being uh, sort of blood breathers, you might say, to air breathers. But other problems include with prematurity, their eyes are not ready, their brain's not ready, their intestines are not ready. 
none of their major organ systems are designed to work yet. They're still supposed to be in the safety and the beauty of their mother's wombs. So what did the CHOP researchers accomplish with these little premature lambs that were equivalently developed to a 22-week-old human baby? Yeah, it's really pretty amazing. They were able to keep them uh, alive and well in this bio bag, in this, in this artificial womb. And, and they did it, and it really worked. And, and how does it work? I, I was able to see pictures of it, little eight-second video clips online. Yeah, we need to do it the best we can uh, for our listeners. We'll try to get this on our Facebook page with the link because it, it, it's not gross. It's really pretty fascinating. But there's this big Ziploc bag that has this cute little baby lamb <laughs> in it. And there's fluid in the bag is produced and replaced just like it is in the mother's womb. And out of the baby lamb's umbilical cord, just like on a baby's umbilical cord, that comes out of the bag and goes to a device that oxygenates that blood, puts oxygen in it, and then sends that oxygenated blood back to the lamb. So it really is an artificial womb. And I understand one of the advantages is that the heart of the lamb, the baby, is providing all the circulation. There's no artificial pressure that's damaging the young blood vessels. Yeah, it it really is working exactly the way the system works naturally. That's that's beautiful. And these lambs stayed in there for up to 28 days, got bigger, and then were released from it and developed ex utero after that. Yeah, I mean, so they, they didn't get infection. They didn't get all of the the problems. I mean, so it really is pretty amazing science. But I think we're going to see when we talk more with Dr. Bedford, as as is so often the case, the science and the ethics don't always go together. And this story and this technology, this development, really pose some fascinating questions that we'll get a chance to explore. And uh, before the break, I'll ask our medical trivia question of the day, which I decided to link to uh, the topic of at least the eggs today. And that is, how many eggs does an average woman ovulate or release for potential fertilization in her lifetime. Yeah, so the listeners got to start doing the math about when a woman starts ovulating and how often that happens. And uh, remember, this will be reduced if she's either using oral contraceptives uh-huh. or or nursing a certain way or pregnant through most of her reproductive life. But we'll give you a, kind of a, a max answer, and we have the uh, expert across from me to uh, let us know if this is correct. <laughs> So stay tuned after the break for Elliot Bedford and discussion of the ethical implications of these two new technologies. We're back now with Elliot Bedford, Dr. Elliot Bedford, who's the Director of Ethics Integration at Ascension Catholic Hospital System in their St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis. He has both a bachelor's and master's degree in philosophy from Franciscan University of Steubenville, a master's in theology from the Aquinas Institute of Technology, and a PhD in Catholic healthcare ethics from St. Louis University. Elliot, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're happy to have you on these these two topics dealing with babies and technology. Elliot, when you're evaluating some medical treatment and the ethical applications of it, you know, where do you start? As an ethicist, you can't just go by gut instinct or even an ideologic viewpoint. What are the principles that you use, and, and what maybe are the principles you're using for these two topics tonight? You know, Elliot, as you think about that, just before the break, Tom and I were talking about how And there's so many examples of how we get a great science thing, and the science can get way out in front of the ethics. It's true, especially when you look at things from a science fiction point of view. And some of this conversation really made me think of some of those science fiction books that I've read, like Brave New World, right? (laughs) Yes. But when you are looking at issues like this, especially working from the Catholic perspective, which is how I do things, it's really nice to be able to work from a framework or a worldview that really has a well-thought-out vision of what the human person is and what's good for the human person and society. And so that's where we turn to initially. And so for issues having to do with fertility and reproduction, the church really offers some pretty concrete guidance in the terms of, I'm going to outline three principles here, the first being respect for human dignity. 
And that's really respecting the human individual, body, mind, and soul uh, in a way that affirms their status as a child of God created in the image and likeness of God. So that means things like do not kill them intentionally, do not you know, enslave them, rape them, so on. Uh, but also means on a positive side of things that we are to do things that help individuals flourish, like feed them and clothe them and, and, and educate them. The second and corollary piece to that is what we call the common good or, or uphold the common good or foster the common good. And that principle really takes its kind of insight or guiding insight from the fact that we're social by nature, right? Human beings don't exist in isolation. We grow and develop and flourish only in communion with one another. And that's ultimately because we're made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God. Now, Elliot, is that so, also really the principle of solidarity, sort of we're all in this together? It is, because one of the ways that, I mean, that's kind of, uh, I'll say, a way you can specify the common good. Mm. When you look at the principle of the common good, it really boils down to how do we... Um, I guess, affect what's best for everyone together. So no one gets left out, right? Mm -hmm. There's other models that would say what's best for the collective good. And the collective good could leave people out because, you know, the one sheep uh, can get lost, but the 99 are saved, right? Mm -hmm. But that's obviously not God's view on things. So individual human dignity and the common good and the, the way that we specify those two in the context of reproduction is we say, we talk about the dignity of marriage, upholding the dignity of marriage. And that is really about helping man and woman in their complete uh, and total endearing, or enduring gift of self to one another. So does whatever proposed technology or action help man and woman live together and kind of further their marriage? So those are the three principles that we can really look at used to look at these types of questions. And it really boils down, I would say, when you look at an authentically Catholic ethic, you're going to go back to John, what is it, 1334, where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. It's, it's really what it all boils down to, because it's saying, God gave us the example of how to love, and we are to do that as well. So the question here is going to be, does this proposed technology help man and woman love one another as God loves each one of them, right? Now, that's a great explanation. So, I mean, from a practical standpoint, there's this young woman, a model in the story that we talked about earlier, who uh, she's worried about not making eggs later in life. So she says, I'll just freeze them now. So I'll have them available later. What could possibly be wrong with that? (laughs) Well, you look at the intention and you say, you know what, the idea that she wants to have a kid later in life, even if it's delayed, that's admirable. That's a a very natural thing. Um, But from the perspective of does this really uphold the complete and exclusive permanent gift of self to one another, you have to look at kind of what the process is that is involved in harvesting your eggs, storing them in a facility. Uh, and, and the way the church has looked at this is really this, if you break it down into those kind of component parts, reduces, I'll say, complete gift of self, that's what is how marriage is built up, down to a manufacturing process. Hmm. So uh, insofar as she's trying to say, you know what, I'm going to, you know, put this deposit in the bank and store it for later, it is essentially she's commoditizing herself by breaking down her, you know, her, her um, reproductive capacity into a manufacturing process. And that is, I would say, undermining her own human dignity. Now, it might be uh, a well-intentioned, you know, reason, but objectively speaking, what you're doing is actually harmful to your own status as a human being there. And then it's going to also do the same thing for the child born of that action, Mm. because they're just, again, the end result of a manufacturing process. So it's looking at making babies instead of what we would say is procreating babies or treating babies as objects uh, instead of subjects, instead of persons. Certainly. 
you know, the church teaches that the child has the right to be uh, respected in their fundamental human dignity from the moment of their conception. And in this type of process where they're literally, you know, uh, created ex, ex vivo outside the body, then that is by its own nature, yeah, cuts against that. It, they're objectified right from the beginning. And that's, that's you, you know, you see that on one individual instance. And you say, well, you know, they had a good intention. But if you kind of multiply that out onto a societal level where you're saying, well, we're just simply, you know, uh, this is the way that we're going to be reproducing now, you can see the immediate impacts of, well, large-scale commodification of human beings is a very, very dangerous place to be. We've been there in terms of history because there was a large-scale uh, practice of slavery, and that's what it was was commodifying human beings for labor. The church sees a lot of parallels between that type of activity and a society where human beings are manufactured rather than viewed as a gift. You know, it's interesting. We we hear a lot in the news about something or someone being pro-woman or otherwise. And this really, it it seems, particularly in the way that you describe it, it, it sounds like the ultimate objectification of a woman. She just becomes this, this machine that produces eggs and later babies. It's hard to imagine that 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 could be construed as pro-woman. Oh, well, you'd have to go back and say what their conception of a woman is already off base if they are (laughs) uh, trying to say that this is something that advances the cause of, of womanhood. Because they're, they've got a bad model, they think that this is more like a man, something that's, that's every time I hear that, is, no, this is more, you know, they're more independent and reproduction is separated from them. It's more akin to kind of the responsibilities a man has. Mm. I'd say, well, first of all, that's based off of an erroneous concept of what manhood is. And then here you're going to say exactly the point you just made around, well, if you further alienate reproduction from, uh, from you know, your own personhood, then you're just going to be viewed as parts and you need to supply a part in the process, but you have less and less control over that unless it's like economic control, right? So you're going to see things mm-hmm. like we, we view this from the lens of uh, property rights and markets. And it's a really dangerous place to be. Yeah, you just, you've just commodified yourself or you've doubled down on commodifying yourself. So, Elliot, they market this that your your eggs will be forever young, regardless of how old you are. And, you know, when I heard that, the th- first thing that I thought of is, is this something that we as a society really want to embrace? In other words, you know, what are the implications of, say, a 55-year-old woman giving birth using 25-year-old uh, eggs? Well, from a physiological standpoint, I'd have to defer to you, Chris. Um, but at the same time, I would say I, I think if you look at an interger- intergenerational justice perspective and say, okay, if this child's parent is 55 starting out, one, from a practical level, where do they get the energy to be able to do this? Um, <laughs> like I've got a one-year-old right now and a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and yeah, my, my, my parents are saying, yeah, we'll see you in a little bit. We'll take care of them for an hour, but then, <laughs> you know, that's it. So there's the practical level of, like, how much actual uh, energy and, and kind of the loving and attentive care would they be able to get? That's more of a theoretical question, probably varies on person to person, but at the same time, like, look at the implications for this child growing up. They're, you know, they're going to be what uh, parents are going to be in their 70s or 80s when they're getting into high school, getting into, uh, you know, moving into trying to be financially stable on their own. Mm. All sorts of kind of societal implications, the, the larger you have that gap wow. and just the ramifications that that would have for the way that society runs. I mean, right now we already have a, you know, a fertility rate that's lower or right around replacement. And if you just said, well, no, I'll delay uh, my child may, uh, having years until I'm 55, um, okay, wait a minute. This is going to be, you know, uh, the Medicare population and then like 10 people trying to take care of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elliot, 
if we take this intention of this young model, which is good, what would be an ethical way to achieve her goals? So there's a lot of ways, I would say. that, And, and here's where I'd go back to really the whole point of what we ought to be doing, right? That's how you should start the ethics question, not with the what, what ought we not do. We ought to be focusing on how this uh, young woman can ultimately fulfill that good intention and good desire in a way that is consistent with her dignity, the, the man she marries, and then also the child. And the way that you're able to do that is, you know what, and it goes in a specific order, right? It has to go from her, her husband, and then the child, because that's kind of how it proceeds. But that means that she ought to do things that ought to maximize her fertility from the outset. And now I don't know what the specific instance is why she couldn't potentially have, you know, eggs later. But the idea here is so, you know, Chris, you are involved in helping people, you know, unleash the power of their fertility and, and right that type of thing. So what interventions are possible through things like NAPRO technology or what could be achieved if we were to do more research and develop that technique further? Yeah, That's where we should start you know, the conversation. The story that we were talking about was even, I think, even more insidious, and that was, look, everything is fine with you right now. You have no pathology right now. You know, the concept was you can be in charge. You can decide when you're pregnant, when you raise children, if there will be a husband or just a donor. You know, it was it was really all about you're in charge. You get what you want when you want it. Right. It was pretty distasteful, I think, uh, listening to that. Yeah, pure autonomy. It doesn't really speak to, yeah, autonomy sort of taken to the nth degree as opposed to this idea. And and we've had other guests on other shows where we talk about sort of worshiping at the altar of individual autonomy. But it -hmm. it sort of flies in the face of God has called two men and women together in the sacrament of marriage, and they may or may not be called to biologic parenthood. None of us are in charge of that. Uh, we're just no, trying, that's, we're trying that's, to live that out, aren't we? That is the fundamental distinction, I think, that cuts across all of this, is if you have that purely autonomy or radical autonomy vision that says, you know, from John Stuart Mill, over your body, you're absolute, over your person and self, you're absolutely sovereign, right? right? That this is mine. I get to do with it whatever I want. Versus the Christian viewpoint, which is, you're creating the image and likeness of God. Your body's a gift to you, and it's on loan because you're going to be giving it back to God, right? Mm. Ultimately, that says very, very different uh, ethical implications for each of those. And you know what? It doesn't surprise me that that's kind of the marketing viewpoint of this. Of even if there's not anything physically wrong with you right now, it's just you know to maximize your options. So this basically, we're we're. Um promoting selfishness with this instead of the gift of the body to others, which is the crux of the theology of the body. Mm -hmm. Uh, And right now, Elliot, we need to go to our break, but after Mm -hmm. the break, we're going to talk about the artificial womb technology. Thanks for listening to Dr. Doctor. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. If you just joined us, you're listening to uh, Dr. Elliot Bedford, who is the Director of Ethics Integration with Ascension at St. Vincent's uh, Hospital System in Indianapolis. He, unlike your host, is very smart with lots of degrees uh, and lots of things. But Elliot, we're going to move on in our discussion to this story that we covered on this so-called artificial womb. And, you know, since the church really doesn't have a stated ethical position on the topic, to my knowledge, uh, would it be good for us to come up with one sort of ahead of the media curve or ahead of the science curve before this becomes clinically available? What do you think? Well, here's the beauty about how the Church has compiled its 2,000 years of tradition and teaching and insight from Revelation is that it doesn't need to continually offer, I'll say, you know, policy statements or position statements, because we have this really clear vision of the human person, what's good for you as a human individual, the common good, and like I said, the, the dignity of marriage beforehand. So we have these principles to work from mm. 
that then are be uh, you know we can apply them to new technologies here, and then what you'll find is church teaching statements or or kind of definitions are actually just affirmations of how those principles are applied to individual you know technological developments or techniques or whatever. So in this case, I think that the to- the church's tradition already supplies us with the principle to be able to at least preliminarily. Uh, look at these technologies and say, you know what, here's the dividing line between what would be acceptable and not acceptable. Because, you know, these technologies are going to be under development and have been under development for some time now. So I don't think we need to be concerned that there's no official statement yet, because the church gives us really good principles to work with. So sort of the idea is sound reasoning is timeless, isn't it? It is. It is. And in this case, I found an article from the National Catholic Bioethics uh, Quarterly, a leading bioethics um, publication from 2005, an author named Christopher Kazor. He's a really well-known philosopher out of California. He had an article in there saying, asking the question, will artificial wounds um, end the abortion debate? Because potentially you could, instead of having an abortion, just put uh, the babies into this artificial womb. So I would invite your uh, listeners to check out that article because he does a really good job of kind of exploring it from inside the church's teaching and saying, well, what are the dividing lines? And he makes a really important distinction that I think is relevant to this conversation um, uh, out of coming out of Philadelphia, um, which was that there's these two different concepts of you know, when we start talking about artificial womb. Hmm. And one is the idea he calls complete or total ectogenesis, and that just means gestation outside the body, right? Sounds yeah. like Star cool. Trek. That's right. It's a cool term. I would invite your reader or your listeners to uh, get a hold of it and start using it, because it's fun. <laughs> um, and then there is partial ectogenesis, which means basically that sometime after the the child is conceived in in utero they need to be transitioned into this uh this this apparatus and what we're dealing with in terms of what's been technologically developed thus far is more so this partial uh this partial ectogenesis where The articles that I've been seeing were talking about looking at taking care of fetal lambs, I guess it was, that would be equivalent to something like a 23 to 25-week-old neonate human being. Yeah, the first time I read it, uh, the, the doctor side of me thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It's better care in the neonatal intensive care unit, or the NICU, as we say. Uh, right. My hospital has a NICU. Your hospitals in Indianapolis have NICUs. And we thought, oh, this is just another tool to take care of extremely premature babies. And then the more you think about it, that's when it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? Because it's, it's funny, true. it almost turns the secular argument on abortion around because so much of their thinking is based on the concept of viability, mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. do anything you like to a human embryo, we would say baby, before it's viable, so to speak. But once it's viable, no, no, it's off limits then. This technology, at least taken to the nth degree, could say, gosh, viability could almost be which, you know, like you crazy Catholics talk about, conception almost. Uh, That's an interesting twist of events, isn't it? It is. And And Christopher Kazor says, look, the majority of people are going to buy the argument of, okay, now that you've got this, the, the bio bag, that's the terminology that I saw in the article that they used on Philly. Uh, if you've got this thing that's going to be able to take care of uh, neonates, then we can reach a compromise position and do that instead of killing the, the baby. But there's going to be the logically consistent people, and I've seen articles out there saying this, that no, actually people have a right to the death of a fetus because they have a right to uh, not become biologic parents. Now, that's an argument out there. Whether it's a good argument, I'll I'll leave that to, uh, well, to to another time. But the point is, you're going to, it's not an end, you know, it's not going to be an open and shut case. But I think when we're looking at 
this this technology, the church's teaching is pretty clear that look, conception and gestation, all of that outside of the marital context, you know, um, that we've talked about already in the the in vitro type of conversation, or or in this case, it would be complete total ectogenesis mm. that's already precluded that would be uh, that would not be something that would uphold and affirm and build up marriage in other words if, if, to interrupt you sorry but if we were thinking about that practically speaking you have an ivf baby that is a baby produced in a lab and instead right. of putting that baby back into the mother's womb they put it in this bio bag the baby grows up, you take the baby out of the bio bag, and now you have a baby. That would be sort yep. of the, that taken to the nth degree, wouldn't it? That's exactly it. I mean, it sounds, and that's what you read in like Brave New World, yes. that's what they do. Yeah. Um, and so that's, the church's teaching is fairly clear on, on if that were ever to become a technological possibility, it's not something that would be supported by church teaching. So if we thought of uh, a woman who has extreme premature babies, say 20 weeks, which today that child would have no opportunity to survive. This technology might allow us to take that baby, quickly put them in the bio bag, keep them there another 20 weeks. Is there an, an ethical challenge with that scenario? Well, here, let, before we get into that question, I want to take a step back and I want to say, again, we always evaluate these type of things from the perspective of, first, does it uphold marriage mm-hmm. and does it respect the dignity of the person. So I think with respect to dignity of the person being the baby, yes, that would be very clear. But if we're talking about, and you're an OB, what's the best thing for the baby? Is it to be gestated in a bio bag or is it to to go along natural means, generally speaking? Today the natural means are inferior, so to speak, and so that baby would perish. I guess I would argue, as a as an amateur ethicist, the the best thing for the baby would be to be alive because we want mm-hmm. life. Uh, so that would seem to be okay. But then again, I'm just a simple country doctor. No, no, and you're you're right on the point where I'm saying, if you look at respecting the dignity of the baby, mm-hmm. I think that it, it becomes very clear that yes, this bio bag option is there. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering from a, I'll say. We're not looking at, we're looking at it as a rescue, right? We're looking at yes. the bio bag as a rescue option versus what are the things that we can do to help avoid premature birth? Sure. And that's where I'd go to what does, for instance, NAPRO technology have to, um, have to say about reducing the amount of premature births. Sure. I know in Indiana, we have a very large like problem with this because we're like 47th in the country right. uh, around neonatal mortality. Yeah. What can we do to help ensure that moms are not going into premature labor or mm. all of those type of things? That's where the question actually should, should start. Sure. Um, and then from there we can talk about, yes, bio bags and, and helping premature uh, babies in certain instances. It's absolutely something we want to do as a, you know, further way to help and support marriage in the common good. Yeah, you know, and so then con- continuing with that sort of uh, B-rate movie analogy, I had this idea that, you know, the woman wants to have an abortion, she decides, no, don't have an abortion, you can sell your baby to the biobag people, and they'll grow the baby up for kidneys or for retinas or for, you know, hearts for organ transplant. It sounds sci-fi, but at the same time, given some of the debates we hear in the public square, I could see people advocating for that, and that would most certainly be a problem, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be not something, if, you know, if we're selling organs for, <laughs> for profit, then that's not something the church is going to support. Um, so, so, Elliot, uh, if, right now, the earliest they seem to put babies into NICUs is 22 to 23 weeks. Do you see right. an ethical problem with putting a baby at that stage of development if they have no other option besides death, into a biobag versus the NICU, which has higher complications? 
Um, no, and that boils down to the question of safety. Where is this in terms of the actual development of the technology? If we're simply, you know, right now I understand it to not even be close to human trials. Correct, sure. So there's, uh, is this for the benefit of the, the baby? But once we have developed sufficiently the technology, I think that actually you could make an argument that this is morally, it's superior because NICU isn't, you know, it's basically an adult model of care where the body is designed to heal itself and you're intervening and, you know, yes. it's limited by your lung capacity versus here uh, with the bio bag. It's actually uh, we're focused on growth and development and growing the child, which is what it needs at that time, not simply to um, have, you know, these adult interventions on it. But um yeah, I could see a very strong argument for once we've sufficiently developed the technology to be demonstrably good for the babies, that it would be probably morally, um, at least at least uh, within the realm of wow. use. And then clinically, it would be, that's where it would boil down. I'd defer to your physician. Well, Elliot, you bring up some amazing points, and you bring them up in such a way that it really helps us think about it. It, it strikes me that just because we can doesn't mean we should. And it's probably our job to always remember to remind our patients and, uh, and our listeners that. But thank you for making these complicated ethical principles uh, easier to understand. Happy to do it. And we, I, I would add to that, first always ask the question, what ought we be doing? Hmm. Then ask the question, what can we do? And then say, well, should we do it? Ah, amen. Dr. Elliot Bedford, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you. And stay tuned for a little more after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. We're happy that you're spending some of your time with us. And if you're just tuning in, your timing is perfect because it's time for the answer to the trivia question that Dr. McGovern posed earlier. Which is? How many eggs does an average woman ovulate in her lifetime, Tom? Well, you're the expert in that, so I looked it up on the internet. You can confer or confirm whether or not it's true, but during fetal life, a woman or a girl has six to seven million eggs, and the number only decreases from there. At birth, I saw that there are about a million eggs in her ovaries, and by the time of puberty, a mere 300,000 remain. But how many eggs are typically ovulated during a woman's lifetime? Only three to 400 eggs. And fertility drops as a woman ages, uh, as does the quality of her eggs. So it's a very small number for what she started with. Yeah, it's amazing. Patients are always surprised when I talk to them to learn that a woman is born with a fixed number of eggs. And every time she ovulates, she's spending one of those fixed number of eggs. And when she has spent the last one, that's called menopause. Yes. Thank you for that very easy uh, understanding of when menopause comes on. I, but I don't think there's an easy understanding of how to deal with a spouse <laughs> with menopause. That's for another show, Tom. Uh, really? Will we even touch that? <laughs> <laughs> fearlessly. 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 So there was an interesting report that came out on January 10th. 2019 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It was from their Department of Vital Statistics. And it showed a vital statistic in which the United States is no longer vital. <laughs> in other words, we're not replacing ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the birth rate, the idea of 2.5 kids and a station wagon, maybe that was something that our parents or grandparents aspired to but from a, from a societal, from a country standpoint anyway, it's no longer. What is the new number? Well, we need 2.1 children per woman to maintain uh, equal population. And it's, the, it's more than two because there's going to be death and there's, right. you know, things are going to happen. So 2.1 to replace ourselves. 2.1. And we dropped below that over 10 years ago in the United States. We are at like 1.7. In fact, uh, there were only two states that are replacing ourselves. Surprisingly, the top state that is replacing itself is South Dakota. <laughs> Who would have thought with 2.23 uh, uh, children per woman, whereas the worst was the District of Columbia, only 1.42 children 
per woman. So to me, that says the people in South Dakota love life so much, they want to make sure that it's replaced. Not sure what that means about the people in the District of Columbia. Uh, I won't go there, <laughs> although I actually fly there the day after we're, we're uh, filming this. We're not filming this, taping it. I knew there was a different word. So anyway, uh, we, we decided to talk about this because we talked about two technologies, the, the egg freezing and the uh, artificial are, womb, yeah. which lead one to think that we as a society are trying to do everything we can to have babies. Yeah, it's remarkable too, and and you can you can find your. I know I've found myself in big debates with people arguing that uh, the Catholic teaching on contraception is inherently wrong because of overpopulation. That we're just exploding. There's no more land. There's nowhere to live. We're overcrowded. And to those people, I always want to say, have you ever flown from Fort Wayne to California? <laughs> or to anywhere from Fort Wayne. <laughs> That's right. And this, this, these vital statistics really just support what you see out of the airplane window, don't they? Uh, yes. In fact, I know you like uh, this little tidbit, and I think I like learning these things as I grew up. I looked up how much habitable land <laughs> there is in the world. In other words, real land that people could live on. So we're not counting Antarctica. We're not counting, you know, things in the permafrost, although there are some people who live there. But guess how much land each person alive today, the over 7 billion people would have on the earth? I give up. It's 2.3 acres. That's not much to mow. That's not bad. No, <laughs> no, it's not. But that every person... Um, could have that. And in fact, the entire population of the world could fit into Texas if Texas had the same population density as New York City. That takes a minute for our viewer, our listeners to sort of picture that graphic. But the entire world population would fit in the great state of Texas. That's remarkable. It seems impossible, doesn't it? And we are producing, as a world, more food than we need. It's the distribution of the food and getting it to people that's been uh, the problem. But but in all candor, why is there this overwhelming sense of a need for some to make us feel as though we're overpopulated? You know, we looked at, I think it was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to contraception in third world countries yes. because of overcrowding, when in reality we're not overcrowded. Now we're undermanaged and undergoverned and underhelped and a lot of other unders but not overcrowded. Why do you think that is? That is a good question. I, I think one of them is uh, relates to what Elliot was talking about previously, is was we don't remember what a woman is or a man is or what a person is anymore. We're not a commodity. You, you know, the world is for our good, and, and we are responsible to use it appropriately. Uh, but I think people are looking at themselves and at others as objects instead of as, as persons. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is remarkable when the greatest form of at least in my area, the greatest form of female health care, so to speak, is birth control. At least that's what's touted yes. from a policy perspective. We're seeing lawsuits and the like from states that are worried that they're, they're not going to be allowed to provide free contraception because contraception is held up as the ultimate health care goal. Yet we have, we have all of these other tremendous health care problems, like infertility in my world, that are completely ignored. It is just amazing. Now, I am glad that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does do things like help with vaccinations yes, in absolutely. other countries. So they yeah. are doing some good things. Not to disparage them, but some of their choices seem unusual. Many choices of uh, the wealthiest people in the world seem unusual in that they are for reduced population. Yes, yet yeah. economics says that they need customers. But it's ironic. Look at these two studies that we've discussed in our time with Elliot and that we're, we're desperately looking for technology to get us more babies. Uh, and yet our fertility is dropping as a world. I know I've, I've heard several people talk to my kids who visited Europe to say that talk about this sort of depopulization of Europe, countries like Denmark and Sweden and some of the others. There are just no children. Uh, no. And nothing that the government does is stimulating the people to want more. I, I know Sweden was offering uh, money to families that would have a third or fourth child, but it wasn't really moving the needle because that's not the reason you have babies. You have babies because you value them. You know, here's an alternate way of thinking of some of these, I think, fertility issues. And it's something that I get a chance to talk about a fair amount in my medical practice. And that is 
do you want to be a mother? Do you, do you feel like God's plan for you includes motherhood? Uh, if it does, then seek a spouse that God's reserved for you and then remain open to life as part of marriage and the marital embrace with that spouse. But there is a reality that every couple is not called to biologic parenthood. You and your wife were, thank God. My wife and I were, thank God. But every couple isn't. But if they don't try, they may never find out. That's right. And the earlier you try, the more likely (laughs) that you will conceive. And if there is a disease that's preventing the couple from achieving openness to parenthood, then it's incumbent upon doctors like us to fix that disease and let them be open to life, open to pregnancy, and at the same time recognizing they may or may not be called. And OB doctors like Chris, who use natural procreative technology or NAPRO, are doing it in line with the way the body is supposed to work much more than those who who don't use NAPRO technology. So if you are in that boat, having trouble conceiving, look for a physician who does practice NAPRO technology as part of his or her practice. Now, at the risk of sounding like father's time, uh, here's an idea. (laughs) Natural law is that, isn't it? It's natural and it's law. You, as it turns out, can have it all, despite all the best marketing campaigns from Nike or from anyone else. There, there have to be compromises and there have to be priorities. If you choose to avoid pregnancy when you're young, there could be long-term implications, and maybe right. that's okay. If you elect to have children when you're young because that's important to you, there may be professional accomplishment or financial implications. And guess what? That's all right, too. So thanks for putting a bow on it, Chris. Thank you to our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. We'll be discussing, get this, testosterone, manhood in a bottle, or toxic masculinity with Tucson endocrinologist, Dr. Craig Stump. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have a question for our doctors? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.